And today we are, uh, we're talking about um, character. And I'm so thankful that my parents are here today because they really showed me what that looks like as a young man, as a little boy growing up. And um, I appreciate what you poured into my life and uh, what I'm hopefully able to pour back into my children's life. But character is a big deal. And when we look at the life of Joseph, we see the process, how God brought him through this place of maturation. Um, There was the betrayal. And man, I'm telling you, he got done wrong, didn't he? Um, I asked this question in the early service. uh, How many favorite sons or daughters do we have in the congregation? You are the favorite child. Okay, you're about as bold as they were in the last service, so that's good. Yeah, at least you know, you know, at least you know. Um, You're either either, uh, the favorite or I always, and sorry, Lynn, but you're the youngest. So whichever one works out for you, you know. So uh, you know you're the favorite or the youngest if everybody else had to wait X amount of time to do something. But ah, let's just let him go ahead and do it. Or, you know, her. And so I said, well, I, you know, I, I'll get over the bitterness eventually. But, um, but Joseph was his father's favorite son. And we learned last week what happened to him, right? He was beaten, thrown into a pit. They decided, well, we could kill him, but let's sell him into slavery. And uh, we'll get some money out of the deal. And we'll give him to the Ishmaelites. And then the Ishmaelites sold him to Potiphar. Uh, And what we found out last week was ultimately the pit of betrayal can produce the purposes of God in our life. God never wastes a circumstance, okay, good or bad. He doesn't waste them if we'll just look to him and trust him in that circumstance. So today we're going from chapter 37 to Genesis chapter 39. And we want to look at Joseph's life in the house of Potiphar and what God developed in him, the character and integrity that he worked in him as he was exalted to that position, lived in that home, but was tempted on a daily basis by Potiphar's wife. But before we get into that story I want to talk to you very briefly about one of my favorite things in the world. And that is a Krispy Kreme donut. I love a Krispy Kreme donut. And uh, we had a comedian that came here one time. Many of you have heard of him probably. He's a Christian comedian named Tim Hawkins. And um, he said something about Krispy Kreme donuts I'll never forget. He said, I love going to Krispy Kreme, and you pull up into the store, and that red light is on, and it says, hot donuts now. And he said, and I pull in, and I get a dozen of those hot donuts now, and he said, when I put them in my mouth, it's like eating little baby angels. I don't know why that's funny, but we always laugh. It feels kind of wrong, but they are delicious. I mean, they just melt in your mouth. But I love a Krispy Kreme donut. But I don't know if you've ever watched the process of them making 
one of these donuts, it's pretty, it's pretty rough. It's pretty rough, the process. But first they take this little ball of dough and they use a blast of air and they shoot it through the middle of it and that's what opens up the hole. It gives you the donut hole and then the donut. And then the flat donuts are forced to spend time in something they call the proof box. I have quotes in my notes, so I felt like I needed to do that for you. Um, where they ride a vertical elevator up and down in an atmosphere of heat and humidity. And this is what allows the dough to rise. Then the soon-to-be delicacies are dropped in the hot oil in order to be cooked thoroughly. As the circular survivors make their way toward the end of the line, they pass through a cascading waterfall <laughs> of deliciousness called the icing or the glaze, or as we like to call it in my house, a spanking. <laughs> Man, what they go through, the abuse that they endure, these poor fellas go through a lot of pain to only then be boxed up and consumed by a ravenous beast like myself. But I am thankful they are. It is the trials, though, that these lumps of dough endure that make them a Krispy Kreme donut. And I'll go ahead and let you know, after the service uh, last hour, I had a ton of people come up to me and said, I don't know what else I'm doing today, but I know I'm going to go get some donuts at the end of church. In Genesis 39, Joseph is experiencing this type of trial. He's been drilled by his brothers, sold into slavery. And then he, go, then he has to deal with the incessant heat and humidity of a beautiful woman who is hitting on him on a daily basis. And to make matters worse, it's the boss's wife. Okay, And then later, he's going to be dropped into the hot oil of false accusation, and then prison. These are severe trials. Yet these are a few of the trials that have developed him into the man of God that he wants him to be. And just like those trials create the donut and the trials that Joseph is going to go through that we're going to bring out today create the man, chisel away, all the rough edges, and bring before us the man that Joseph becomes. Maybe some of us this morning are in the middle of a trial. Maybe we're passing through not that hot, cascading, glistening waterfall of sugary goodness, but hell on earth. Maybe it's the most difficult thing we've ever endured. But I want to tell you that God is faithful today. And he will not waste that bad experience if we will trust him. So let's look quickly at some background. Joseph is sold into slavery to Potiphar in chapter 37 and verse 36. Potiphar is basically the captain of the bodyguard team that serves Pharaoh. He, is, he, he wields the power of life and death in his hand. And this is the person who buys Joseph. Now Joseph is a shepherd. And so the logical progression of him being bought and then ending up in his house would go something like this. 
he would work in Potiphar's fields first. And after working in his fields for a while, the person who is over him notices what a great job he's doing. And that everything that Joseph goes to put his hands to is prosperous, is successful. And he takes note of that. And so this reaches the ears of Potiphar, who then says in chapter 39 in verse 2, I'm going to bring him into my house. I want him here. I want him to, to be a part of what is going on. And that is a wonderful lesson. And this is an aside for another day. But if you want to jot this passage of Scripture down, Luke 16, 10a, a little a. Uh, and it's, it's a lesson in and the principle of being faithful in little things and God making you ruler over many. And we see this in the life of Joseph. Now, why was he successful? Was he successful because he was just that good? Was he successful because he, he, he was able to manage things that well? Well, the Bible says in verse 2 that the Lord was with Joseph. And then he became, or so he became successful. So what is the source of Joseph's success? The Lord was with him. You can say it. The Lord was with him, right? That was why he was successful. And that really is the narrative that's found around this statement, that the Lord was with Joseph. So understand this. In the most uncertain time of this man's life, a time when as hard as he looked, he could not find God anywhere. The covenant God of Israel was at work to affect his promise through Joseph. He was faithful to him, even when he couldn't see him. Now, why is that important for us today? Because some of us are going through things today. And we have been on our knees. We have been on our faces before God. We have prayed. We have looked for God in this situation. And we have found it very hard to find him. But I want you to trust in a promise that he is at work. That you haven't gotten to a place that is so far, that is so deep, that is so desperate, that you have gotten out of his reach. He loves you. And he is passionate for you. And he is faithful to you. And so even though the circumstances of life may not seem to go your way, always know this. God is in control. There is never a moment when he is not. Never, ever, ever forget that truth. And so in verse 3, his master sees that the Lord is with him and how the Lord has caused everything that he has done to prosper. And so, you know, Potiphar says, man, I'm, I'm bringing you in. Don't miss what's in verse 3 there. Potiphar, a man of authority, a man of power, a man of wealth, a man who is over many, many, many people, takes notice of one guy who's doing something so extraordinary that it catches his attention and he takes notice enough to say, I want that guy in my house running everything that I have. It's one thing to run your business. It's a whole other thing to bring somebody into your house. Isn't that right? I don't know about you, 
but I ain't bringing everybody up in my house, okay? And I'm really going to limit the number of people that get to come up in there and get the remote from me, okay? Because I'm not home much, but when I am, I can't sit down unless that's in my hand. i got to have the remote control. But he trusted him enough that he said, I'm bringing him into my house. And Joseph found favor in the sight of Potiphar. And, um, and he found favor with the Lord. And thus the Lord's blessing, because he brought Joseph into Potiphar's house, it was on everything Potiphar owned, in his house and in the field. So he left him in charge of everything. said the only thing he wasn't in charge of was what he ate. And that may seem simple. That may seem like a, a no-brainer for Potiphar. But if you've ever been out to eat with your wife, you know that choosing something to eat is a little harder than it sounds, right? Anybody, any man ever been out to eat with their wife or out to eat with your girlfriend? And you always pick where you're going to eat, right? Because they're like, yeah, we're gonna, well, I'm going to pick. We'll go here, we'll go there. Well, then you look at your wife and you say, honey, you pick it. You tell us where you want to go. Oh, I'm good. I'll eat anything. It's fine. I don't, I don't care. All right, let's go to La Paz Mexican restaurant. Mm. You, you really want to know this, Petey Gonzalez? Well, well then let's go, uh, let, let's go fast food. Yeah, let, how about Burger King? Man, I'm not eating that garbage. Don't put that in your body. So, you know, it's frustrating. It can be the most aggravating exercise in the world. I just beg and plead. And today, when, when this is over, be nice to me, but you get to pick where we eat, okay? So, <laughs> so that is not always as easy as it sounds, right? But that was the only thing he had to worry about. Well, then this is where the account begins to heat up. We get to verse 6b. Joseph was a very handsome and well-built man. Now, why'd I got to put that in there? But they did. He's handsome. He's well-built. He's young. And what does Potiphar's wife do? She begins to look at him lustfully. And she says, come and sleep with me. She didn't make a suggestion there. The Bible says she demanded it. But Joseph refused. And he looked and he, he, he told her, he said, My master trusts me with everything is in his entire household. No one here has more authority than I do. He has held back nothing from me except what? His wife, right? Which is logical because you are his wife. How could I do such a wicked thing? It would be a great sin against God. But she kept putting pressure on Joseph day after day. But he refused to sleep with her. And he kept out of her way as much as possible. One day, however, when no one else was around, when he went in to do his work, she came and grabbed him by his cloak, demanding, come on and sleep with me. And Joseph tore himself away, but he left his cloak in her hand as he ran from the house. When she saw that she was holding his cloak and he had fled, she called out to her servants. Soon all the men came running. Look, she said, my husband has brought this Hebrew slave here to make fools of us. He came into my room to rape me 
But I screamed. When he heard me scream, he ran outside, got away, but he has left his cloak behind with me. So she kept the cloak with her until her husband came home. And then she told him her story. I love how she tells this story. That Hebrew slave that you brought in my house came on to me, tried to rape me, and this is what he did. And so then Potiphar gets angry and enraged, and then it goes from there. But she puts it on her husband, and she puts it on Potiphar, what did, or puts it on Joseph. What did she do there? She's after him and after him and after him and after him and after him. And when she can't get what she wants, what does she do? She flips it around. She flips the script on him and says, This guy was coming after me. The heat's on Joseph now. He's in the midst of what had to be one of the toughest temptations of his life. He did not cave in. But I want to know today how he did that. How is that possible? How was he able to maintain his composure and keep himself in a place that he needed to be? Well, there are three responses that Joseph gave that helped him succeed. And I want to look at them today. The first response was this, if you're taking notes. Joseph recognized the situation he was in. He recognized the situation. It says in verse 8, but Joseph refused. Look, he told her, I guess I could come here, couldn't I? My master trusts me. With everything in his entire household, no one here has more authority than I do. So the first thing he says is, My, your, your husband trusts me. One of his lines of argumentation was, I'm not going to abuse the trust that has been afforded to me. How many of you know how trust works? Do you know how it operates? Everybody's given a measure, all right? When you meet somebody, they tell you their name. Hey, my name's, I'm going to pick on Jim. My name's Jim. You know, I'm, I live on Stevens Mill Road, and it's the greatest part of Wayne County. And, you know, and all. He's, a, he's a great guy. I love Mr. Jim. And when I meet Jim for the very first time, there's just a measure of respect. It's just boom and trust that I'm right there. We're there automatic because you're a human being, okay? Because Jesus died for you and... Uh, he loves you, and I'm going to love you. And then as I continue to get to know Jim, that trust is going to build, isn't it? And how does it build? It grows over time as I prove, or as he proves rather, I can trust him. We have a task at hand. There's something we go about doing, and he's always there. He's committed. He's a man of his word. His yes is yes, and his no is no. Trust takes a long time to build, to get from here to way up here. How long does it take to absolutely obliterate trust? That long. One decision. One bad choice can destroy what you have spent a lifetime building in a relationship. And so Joseph, the first line of argumentation was, my master trusts me. I'm not blowing that. And then secondly, he says, um, 
No one here has more authority than I do. He has held back nothing from me except you. Because you are his what? Duh. Of course he's going to hold you back. And so he says, I'm not going to bring that offense against your husband. He's given me everything. He's given me run of everything. Does that sound familiar? All we got to do is go back to the beginning of the book of Genesis. Remember the Garden of Eden? What'd they have? Everything except what? One thing. Don't go over there. Why do we do that? Why do we do that? You got all this, but don't touch that over there. Well, man, I just want to see what that's all about. You know, I want to find out what's over there. What's behind door number three? I don't know, but I want to see. But he would not betray the trust he would not bring that offense against the husband and then he says and this is most importantly and this is why God was with him he says how could I do such a wicked thing it would be a great sin against God a great sin against God that was the third line of argumentation and this is what it looks like when you're living a life that is above reproach you're living a life of character, you're looking at every situation and saying, okay, am I abusing trust? Am I bringing an offense against somebody else? And most importantly, am I sinning against God? You look at the situation you're in and you answer those questions and if you can answer yes to any of them, then you take a step back say, nope, not going there. No matter what the cost, no matter what the consequences, I'm going to do what honors God. He was a man of God. Now, there, there's a very important theological point that's being made here. Our sin is never private. Every time we sin, we sin against God. And in a certain sense, our sin is always against Him alone. Because ultimately, that's who we are offending the greatest. But our sin is never, ever private. Okay? It always comes to light. Anybody ever done anything crazy when they were a kid? Um, my dad's here to hear this story. He had to fix it. But it's the, it's the standard my wife always goes to when I get a little bit amped up when the kids have done something they shouldn't do. You know? You dads ain't never been there, but I have. And you kind of get, you know, and you get that and the vein pops out in the middle of your forehead. And you feel like your head's about, you know that commercial where their heads are all exploding? I get there sometimes. Well, she reminds me of this. My parents went out to eat lunch one Sunday afternoon and left us boys home to hang out and play after church because we didn't want to go with them. Well, this one wasn't so bright when it came to mechanical things. And um, I thought it would be an interesting exercise in physics to, to see how long it took a rock to drop from the opening of a gas tank to the bottom of the gas tank. And here it plop. I thought, I didn't know, I was maybe measuring the amount of gas that was in it. I have no idea what was happening or why I thought that might even possibly be a good idea. I thought, nobody will ever find out. They're rocks. 
They're hidden inside the gas tank. Who's going to find that out, you know? Until my dad started driving to work the next day, and it quit on him. Why did the car quit on him? Because you're not supposed to put rocks in the gas tank. doesn't work real well. Your sin will always find you out. There is nothing ever that is private. So if you are committing a hidden sin right now, you are in the middle of a lifestyle of hiding sin from people in your life, stop it right now unless you want it to be public because it will come out. If you're a child of God, he's going to bring that thing in the light. Cut it out, repent of it, turn from it, do an about face, and God is going to raise you up and keep you and put you at the place that he wants you to be. So I didn't get near as many amens with that. I thought I would, but... It's still the truth. Bless God. So So secondly, Joseph first, he recognized the situation. Secondly, in verse 10, he ran from the seductress. We see in verse 10 that um, she kept putting pressure. I keep looking over there. Sorry. Kept putting pressure on Joseph day after day. But he refused to sleep with her. And he kept out of her way as much as possible. It was very difficult for him to stay out of the way because he worked there. Okay? But one day, no one else was around when he went in to do his work. She came. She grabbed him. We read this already. Come on, sleep with me. And Joseph jerked away and ran out of the house and left the cloak in her hand. Now listen. The woman that was Potiphar's wife did not look like Jabba the Hutt, okay, on Star Wars. She was a beautiful lady. And she kept coming on to him and coming on to him, probably dressed seductively and was just trying to break him down. Likely used some one-liners that maybe you have heard before. Man, no one will ever know. No one will ever know. If we do this, just this once, you know, my husband is, he's really not a very good husband. I deserve happiness. I deserve to be happy in my life. Don't I deserve to be happy? Can you just see her? Lip quivering, full of collagen injections. Probably didn't have that. If, If they had it, she got it. I don't know what they used. Or maybe this one. We won't be hurting anyone. Our sin won't hurt anyone. Let me tell you a a truth this morning. Your sin is never private and it never only affects you. It always affects those around you, in particular the people you are closest to in life. I'm using all my mom and daddy, some of my mom and daddy's sayings this morning because you're here to hear them this morning. Mama told me when years ago, she said, don't ever, when when you're confronted with a decision and you're at a crossroads, 
Think about the choice you're about to make and ask yourself this, this, this question. Is the decision I'm about to make something I can come back from? Is it something I can come back from? Or is it something that is going to leave such a devastating wake of carnage in its rearview mirror that it will take years and maybe generations to see healing come in my family from one choice that I make. Be careful the choices that you make. And I, I got some bad news for you guys and gals. Temptation's always before you. It's always before you. It never takes a day off. Temptation is like a telemarketer. You know, they, and I thought, Everybody's got cell phones now. They're, they're, you know, in everybody's back pocket or in their pocketbook. Even, even the kids have them. You know, they got to have them. It's child abuse if a kid doesn't have a cell phone. Did you know that? I didn't know that, but evidently. <laughs> That's what my kids try to convince me of. But, you know, telemarketers even got your cell phone number now. You know, they, they can get that. And they're calling. And, and, you know, temptation is so much like a telemarketer. It comes... When it's least convenient, they call back again and again and again. They keep pushing even after you say no. And they make what they're selling sound so great. Sound like you can't live without it. I got to have this thing right here, right now. But there's always a catch. You know, anybody ever tried to talk you into buying something you really didn't need, you know? I don't need a backhoe, okay? So if I went to, if I went to uh, the John Deere place or the uh, equipment place up here on 70, they tried to sell me a backhoe. If I bought a backhoe, I'm a doofus, okay? I don't need a backhoe because I know you. Some of y'all got backhoes. I can borrow yours. I ain't got to spend that money on that. And even better yet, I can get you to dig the hole. So... But temptation never takes a day off. But the thing that I've noticed is sometimes it's not just the temptation. It's where we place ourselves. We're hanging out in the wrong area. We're hanging out with the wrong people. We're, we're with a crowd that sways and talks us into things that we should not do. And see, that's the thing Joseph didn't do. Joseph was in this position... He knew it was going to cost him his livelihood. He knew it was going to cost him position. It was going to cost him everything he had worked so hard for. And if he ran, he risked the potential of forfeiting all of that. But he knew the right thing to do was to get away. It was to run. I'm not hanging around temptation. I'm not going to be in this place. I'm going to. To run, And so that is exactly what he did. It's important, too, to remember that the cloak that uh, Potiphar's wife grabbed was a lot like an oversized T-shirt. Anybody got an oversized T-shirt, maybe? Maybe it's pajamas for you or whatever. But can you imagine she grabs this cloak and he's trying to get out of it? And I mean, it looks like, I don't know what it looks like. It's, but, I mean, there's a struggle there. For him to get away, I mean, he had to be very intentional about getting away from her. But he knew that 
with, with every ounce of desperation in him, he had to flee sexual immorality, 1 Corinthians 6.18. It doesn't say there that we meander away from it. It doesn't say there that we, you know, think about it and weigh the pros and cons. It says flee sexual immorality. If it presents itself to you, get away. Here's what we do with that. We do what Joseph could have done. Think about Joseph's situation. He came from a dysfunctional family. He was hated and betrayed by his brothers. He was sold into slavery His brothers Reuben and Judah were immoral. He was a young man with hormones just raging. No one in his family would ever know that he did it. And the Egyptian culture was filled with sexual immorality. That was what was in his background as he faced this temptation. And yet he said no. We have a tendency in the culture and society that we live in to look at some of those things and say, we might even look at Joseph's life. Say, you know what? Golly, the guy deserves something. You know? I mean, give the dude a break. He's been taken away from his family. He's had this and that and that and this. And it's, you know, he could have pulled a Potiphar's wife on everybody and said, you know, well, you bought me. You put me in here and put me over your house, and what would you expect me to do? But he didn't do that. And here's what we can't do. We can't practice situational ethics in our life. We can't look at the circumstances around us and say, Well, that's wrong in the Bible, but you don't understand my situation. So I got to do this if I want to eat. If I want to have a place to stay, if I want to be able to drive a car to work, or whatever the case may be, and we rationalize sin. And I don't know if probably no one in this room has ever done that, but you know somebody who has. And I'm being facetious when I say that. We've all been guilty of it. But we can't do that. You can't practice situational ethics and expect God to be with you and to bless what you do. Why was Joseph successful? Because God was with him. When we turn our back on God and start living our life any old way we want to, what happens with the hand of God on our life? He goes, okay. I'm here. I love you. You call on me, I'll come. But you going to go do that? You're on your own. Some of us are on our own today. Some of our family, they're living on their own today. They stepped out from under the hand of God, under his care and, and, and his provision for their life because, man, I want to do this my way. Okay. Do it your way. Do it your way. But I'm telling you, just like the children of Israel, just like many circumstances probably in the lives of people that you know, you're wasting weeks, months, 
years of your life doing it your own way. Because eventually, here's what's going to happen. You're going to run into a wall. You're not going to be able to penetrate. And then you're going to turn around and go, okay, God, I probably should have listened to you. So can we do it your way? And you know what? He is so loving and he is so gracious and he is so kind that he'll say, absolutely, absolutely, come to me. But here's my prayer. See, this is the other thing people count on. The other thing people count on is, man, I can go run and do my own thing as long as I want to. And then I can choose to turn back to God any old time I'm ready. But we're not guaranteed tomorrow. I'm not guaranteed my next breath. For us to know what is right and good to do and not do it is sin against God. When you walk out of here and you've heard truth and you ignore it and you deny it and you don't live by that truth, then when you walk out, you walk out on your own. I don't want to be on my own in this world. I don't know if you've looked at the television lately. I don't know if you've watched the headlines lately, but it's a pretty scary place we live in. And if we didn't have Almighty God, in our, and if I didn't have Him in my life, and I wasn't walking with Him and living with Him and serving Him every single day, if I didn't have the assurance that God is sovereign over this world and in my life, man, I'd be scared to death. But because I know that, I'm confident. I'm confident. I know the best is yet to come. I know the best is yet to come. So, take that for what it's worth. So, what did God do in response to Joseph? Joseph recognized, he ran, and then God removed him. And God removing him from the situation didn't happen when he ran away. That was the beginning of it. But what happened to him? How did he remove him from the situation? I told you that temptation oftentimes what, what we have to do to deal with temptation is to get away from people and places and things that kind of draw us into that life, right? And so this is an issue. There's a temptation, a big temptation at Potiphar's house. So what does God allow to happen? What we want to say there is, well, God, by his providence, took Joseph out of Potiphar's house. He set him in a, a, a field of white lilies and all of the provision and food that he could ever want. No, he put him in jail. He allowed Joseph to go to prison. He removed him from the situation. Now, did it get him away from Potiphar's wife? Yeah. Pretty hard for her to get to him there. Now, she lied. She deceived. The whole point of her story and her flipping it around on him was to accuse him and get him into all kinds of trouble. But what happened? Because God was with Joseph, what happened? Let's read it. Verse 19. Potiphar was furious. I'm sorry, we don't have 19. But yeah. Potiphar was furious when he heard his wife's story about how Joseph had treated her. So he took him, threw him into prison. Then verse 21. But the Lord was what? With Joseph. What did it say in verse 2 of chapter 39? Before he was placed in Potiphar's house, the Lord was what? With Joseph. So he goes through all that at Potiphar's house. And do you guys realize how long he was in Potiphar's house? 
Does anybody have any idea? I didn't know this until I did this study and found this out. Joseph was 17 years old when he was sold into slavery. You can see that in verse uh, 2 of chapter 37. He was 30 when Pharaoh promoted him in chapter 41, verse 46. He had been in prison for two of those years. Do you know how many years he was in Potiphar's house? Eleven. He was in Potiphar's house eleven years. It doesn't sound like that when you read it. It's like a blip on the radar. But he was in the midst of that temptation for eleven years. He endured that. I got to have a feeling when he got put in jail, he was like, thank you, God. You know? I finally get to rest here. I don't wake up and some creepy person's just looking at me. You know, what you doing? I'm sleeping. Get out of my room. You know, the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him and gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. The chief jailer committed to Joseph's charge. What? All the prisoners who were in the jail. What happened at Potiphar's house? Everything he had, he committed to Joseph. He gets put in jail. They're like, ah, you're a junior warden. Come on in. You know, I mean, who does that happen to? Why did that happen? Because the Lord was with Joseph. So whatever was done there... He was responsible for it. The chief jailer did not supervise anything under Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made to prosper. Joseph chose a life of integrity and character. Integrity is what you do when nobody else is around. When you think nobody else can see and nobody else is looking. What kind of choices do you make during that time? But let me tell you something. Whatever those choices are, God sees every one of them. They're not hidden from Him. You see this? Man, that's Genesis 39. That's the Old Testament. That's the first book of the Bible. Good grief. How does that apply to my life? Why is integrity, why is character so important for me and my family? Well, let's check this clip out and see. My name is Laura. My name is Matthew. I was fresh out of college living in New Jersey and finding a job was difficult. My neighbor owned a mortgage company that was handed down to his two sons to operate, and he had asked me if I was interested in applying for a position as a processor within the company. Since I needed a full-time job with benefits and a position in my degree was not available, I applied and was offered the job. I was very successful and loved what I did. One night after hours, I was wrapping up and getting ready to leave for the day. I had passed by one of the loan officer's desks and saw him and another loan officer altering numbers on social security cards and creating fraudulent pay stubs for borrowers to qualify for loans. They knew I saw what they were doing and it didn't faze them. 
They were the top two loan officers that brought in all the revenue and business for the company. I've been raised a Christian all my life. I've been brought up to be honest, speak the truth, respect, and do unto others as you wish to be treated mentality. I prayed hard that night, and feeling empowered by the Holy Spirit, I knew I wouldn't be turning a blind eye. I couldn't ignore what I had seen. I approached the president of the company the next morning and told him what I saw. He told me he would take care of the situation. I was relieved that that heavy burden was lifted off my shoulders and honesty would be rewarded. However, a few days later, I was called into the president's office and told I was no longer needed as an employee. That one decision cost me my job. I was crushed, I was hurt, I was confused, devastated that honesty is the best policy struck out. But I knew I was not alone. God was with me. Moving forward five years after my termination, being newlyweds, our marriage was already on the rocks. As I lost my job two more times due to the mortgage crisis that crippled the economy, our savings were depleted from me being unemployed, and my brother took his own life during this time. And that brought devastation to me and my family. If it weren't for our faith and trust in God, we would be divorced. We would have never started a family, and we would not have a life where we are today. But without these trials of affliction and our personal relationship with God, I wouldn't be who and where I am today. I have many blessings to be thankful for. We've been living in North Carolina for eight years now. I have a loving, supportive husband, a family, a great and successful job, and our health to name a few. God did not abandon me through my success or suffering as his hand has always been good and gracious. God is with those who trust in him, even in the most difficult times, and he will not abandon you. It is through his grace that will give us strength, peace, and even joy, no matter what the situation is. And I know God will always be with me through all my triumphs and challenges because I trust in him. I am not alone. We are, we are not, not alone. alone. Mm. Amen. Isn't that awesome? You are not alone. But you are one decision away from radically changing your life. For the better or for the worse. She made a decision. She made the right decision. And because she made that choice, did you hear what Matt said at the end of that little expose they did there? He said if it wasn't for the choice she made, they wouldn't have the life, the marriage, the family that they have today. God blessed them immensely because she chose God. What is your choice going to be today? Do we choose Jesus or do we choose ourselves? Because we got two, two choices to make. But one of them results in radically different consequences. Consequences that will affect not just you, but they will affect your children, your grandchildren, their children, for generations to come until that is broken. 
My prayer today is that you choose wisely. It isn't the big decisions in life that affect us the most greatly. It's the little ones. It's that simple choice. It's saying yes to the right thing at the right time, to the right person, at the right place. Will you trust Him enough today at the crossroads that you're in to say yes to God?